tres, cuatro. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. After nearly 40 years, Slayer, the giants of metal, are about to embark on their final tour. We discuss the band's long run and revisit our interview with the iconic thrash band. We just did what we wanted to do, regardless of what was happening. Plus, we'll mark the 25th anniversary of Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville and share our opinions on the new album from Janelle Monet. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week, Jim, we're going to revisit our interview with Slayer. you got to say it, Slayer! Slayer! And they're going on their farewell tour after 37 years. That's later in the show, Greg, but first, some new music. It's like I'm powerful! That is Make Me Feel from the new Janelle Monet record, Dirty Computer, her first in five years. Janelle Monet grew up in uh, Kansas City, Kansas, uh, was one of those multifaceted artists. Uh, she was into theater, dancing, singing, writing, movies. Uh, went to New York first looking for acting jobs. Decided, you know, the standard issue Broadway plays are not for me. She gravitated to Atlanta. Uh, where her ambition was to write her own brand of musical, and there she flourished. Um, she uh, released a sci-fi concept album called Metropolis in 2007, uh, based on the famous silent movie, and inspired uh, in part not only by Fritz Lang, but the whole idea of these androids who are going to take over uh, the world, or at least uh, in- inhabit her personality and give her an escape from the world. Uh, the arc android followed, uh, the members of Outcast embraced her. They included her in their 2006 movie Idlewild. Uh, she came out with a yet another record in 2013, The Electric Lady. Then came a five-year gap, important gap here, because uh, she starred in two major Hollywood movies, Hidden Figures and Moonlight. Some people thought she'd put her music career uh, on hold to uh, uh, focus on her acting. Uh, but no, we finally got a new album from Janelle Monet. It's Dirty Computer. Uh, we're going to review it in a second, but here's a track from it. At first, it's called Screwed from Janelle Monet on Sound Opinions.
That is Screwed uh, with a little bit of Zoe Kravitz on there, Janelle Monet's new album, Dirty Computer. Greg, what a song, what an album, uh, a, a new masterpiece from Janelle Monet. She is an important and vital voice on the pop landscape right now. Uh, you know, I hear that song, Screwed, and, and uh, Django Jane, uh, as about black women in particular, the way they're made to feel invisible by our society. Uh, this is the sexiest album Janelle Monet has given us, Dirty Computer. What is she talking about? Um, we are all the dirty computers. Uh, we, we have hard drives on the fritz. <laughs> We're malfunctioning machines, uh, and she's taking joy in that. I'm not that special. I'm broken Crashing slowly. The bugs are in me. In the past, she was playing with Afrofuturism and science fiction themes and veering, you know, to, toward a, a genre I, uh, I really dislike, the musical, uh, with terms, you know, concepts and, and, and such. Um, I, I think it all comes together in a much more organic way uh, as a great pop album, not to slight the previous records, uh, you know, minus the conceptual baggage and just giving us a great set of songs with recurring themes. This notion of of the invisible woman, uh, the notion of of being strong in your sexuality. She uh, describes herself as pansexual, and you know, uh, as such, especially uh, being a gay woman as part of her identity, people still, especially in the black pop world, are not comfortable with that. She sings at one point, I am not America's nightmare, I am the American dream. And she puts her foot down uh, and plants her flag there. She will not take a backseat to anyone. It's a, a liberating album, it's a powerful album, an inspiring album, and it's full of wonderful hooks. There's a lot of Prince influence here. It's just an absolute joyful party record that also has a message. It's the most enthusiastic buy-in I can give. Yeah, it's interesting to see where she's gone. You know, I mentioned these these android characters. Uh, she had created a persona for herself, Cindy Mayweather. You know, yes. this this arc android. The Afrofuturistic concept here is, you know, we're going to escape uh, this planet and make our own world. In the tradition of Sun Ra and Parliament Funkadelic, we don't need you guys anymore. Right. Uh, you know, and that was basically a metaphor, an, an allegory, really, of her feeling there's no place for me in this world. This record is notable because she strips all that away, and she she's at her most personal here. She's not using Cindy Mayweather anymore to do the talking for her. This is this is Janelle Monet addressing the realities of her life from the get go in this record, crazy classic life. Um, you know, she talks about a country that proclaims the individual right uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Can that make room for the young, black, wild, and free? Yeah. Uh, that's her. You know, yeah. she said, where's where's my place in this country? I don't see it yet. Uh, this is an album as an album. Uh, you know, you mentioned the theatrical concepts. She's still thinking conceptually. She's thinking of this as a, as a work that needs to be uh, heard as a whole. Uh, so it's three parts. Some people think, you know, there's a lot of furrowed brow philosophizing going on here. But as you pointed out, 
Uh, she's thinking from the hips too. Yeah. This is not just a head album. This is about you know let's make you move, let's let's make you dance. I think the role of Prince she's mentioned a number of times before. Prince passed away uh, was a big influence on the way this album came together, and you can hear it in the way those grooves work. This is a call to action record, but it's built for dancing. That's the best kind of protest record you can possibly make. So uh, Dirty Computer is a buy it for me. from Liz Fair from her debut album, Exile in Guyville, released 25 years ago, Jim. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's making me feel old. Yeah, <laughs> Liz singing I Want to Be Mesmerizing too. Uh, she was, Greg. When this album dropped, you and I were there, and uh, everyone was mesmerized by Liz Fair. There's a uh, 25th anniversary box set coming out, Matador Records, the uh, label that she signed to. You couldn't have been on a cooler label in 1993, uh, unless maybe you got signed to Sub Pop or somebody like that. But uh, Liz Fair signed to Matador. Uh, they put out the record originally. Now they're putting out a big box set. I think one of the, the cool things about this reissue is that it includes uh, the three girly sound tapes. Uh, remastered, obviously, and on you know in in digital form, uh, that she that really uh, formed the foundation of Exile in Guyville, and was the music that really got her noticed in Chicago. Well, initially, well, it, when the buzz started to build, it was yeah. over those cassette tapes. Do you remember? I think I think a word for our younger listeners, right? I mean, these cassettes, the girly sound tapes, were iconic totems. I mean, I just moved, and I'm yeah. unpacking boxes, and oh, there's the girly sound tapes, right. right? You remember how coveted they were, passed from hand to hand in Chicago yeah. in, in the early 90s? I think anybody uh, who cared about music back then in Chicago had a dub of a dub of a dub of one of these tapes, (laughs) and the buzz was spreading. This woman had not played a show, a single show. She made these three cassettes after coming back from Oberlin College, went to her uh, 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 house in the North Shore with her parents, and in her bedroom made these three cassettes over the span of about a year, year and a half, and they trickled out. She gave them to a few friends just for fun. She was not thinking about a musical career at all. Essentially self-taught on guitar, these songs were sort of pouring out her feelings about being, again, much like Janelle Monet, feeling like a complete outsider in, yeah. in the land of these 
uh, guys who were defining uh, the Wicker Park music scene at the time. And, and, and you recall, this was a time when Chicago was being celebrated as something like the Paris of the Midwest because well, of this musical renaissance yeah, what, by Billboard uh, magazine and people what, like that. What had happened is, you know, uh, grunge was running out of steam in mm-hmm. Seattle. So Billboard uh, did a front page story. Uh, the headline was Chicago, the new capital of the cutting edge. Yeah. And it ran complete, Greg. You recall this? Ran complete with a map of all the clubs right. so that the A&R talent scouts who were descending on the city with their platinum Amex cards could find them. Right. I love that. So into the middle of this, which is very much of a boys club, and, and you know, you had to pay your dues, you had to play uh-huh. shows at bars, well, and, and Liz Fair finds herself in the middle of that, and as our producer said, around the time that uh, the Wood. Exile in Guyville record was being recorded by Brad Wood, uh, Brad said that she's the most hated woman in Chicago because, you know, she was not part of that scene. She was viewed as an interloper, like, who does she think she is, you know? Right. Guyville was was very literal and, and descriptive. Um, you know, the story is Chris Holmes had coined that nickname for Wicker Park, but it became the title of an Urge Overkill song, and it was, you know, guys in Chicago. Mm, yeah. So she puts out this anthemic uh, counterstatement, you know, I'm an exile in your Guyville. Yeah, exactly. With what the girls call, what the girls call, what the girls call, the girls call murder. I mean, there was so unfiltered and so um, descriptive about the awkwardness of her life and the yearning, but also the humor as well. I think a lot of people miss the fact that there was a lot of humor in these lyrics as well. So when this record comes out, you, you, you kind of realize now, in retrospect, if you didn't then, it's a great record. It really it, it stands the test of time to me. But if I'd known how that would sound to you, I would have stayed in your bed for the rest of my life just to prove I was right, that it's harder to be friends and lovers. Well, both you and I uh, thought it was a great record when it came out. Bill Wyman at the Chicago Reader was a super champion, probably the first national exposure she got. There were also problems from the beginning. Liz was exceedingly uh, knowledgeable about marketing. Greg. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she sold the album to the largely male rock critic uh, establishment as this is a song by song response to the Rolling Stones classic Exile on Main Street. Um, I remember a great piece that Steve Knopper, a friend of ours who who now is a Colorado writer, did where he compared song for song uh, Exile uh, in Guyville and Exile on Main Street. It, it doesn't hold up, right? I mean, Exile in on Main Street, which we just did a classic album dissection of, is is an album about decadence and depravity. There is some decadence and depravity in Exile in Guyville, but that's not entirely what it's about. So I think this was a way that Liz positioned the album. Uh, and, and then also there is the, the fundamental difficult question of using sex to sell. There is a, an unbridled expression of Liz's desires and sexuality, which is is They are hers, and she is to be applauded for that. But at what point are you sort of pandering to the male hegemony with these sexual fantasies? Those questions I have not resolved, even after 25 years. I think what you have to look at is she's playing 
the critics and the the whole exile thing oh, yeah. was was very tongue in cheek. It was like you know she's talking to a bunch of guy critics in a guy town with a bunch of guy bands, yeah. and they're saying you know they're going to relate to this. You know, <laughs> she, I'll her, get them. She, I'll get she them was one of those live. people that said you know at, at the end I talked to her years later and she said I hardly listened to that record. Only later did I come to that record and you know try yeah. to do this like little arty ex- experiment. The most uh, infamous song. Is, is Flower, where she's talking about very explicit sex, and it's sung in this little girly voice. It's sung in this very hymn-like voice in some ways, like a childish voice. You would yeah, not expect that voice quality, to be singing yeah. that, that, those, those words. words. Yeah. So I think in a lot of ways she was sending up the whole idea of the way women have been stereotyped in music and the music industry and specifically by uh, the, the men's club that runs the industry. And at the time, I, I'm, I'm going to use a vulgar word here, but I don't want to use it. Yay! It, it was an incredibly straight up, you know, F you to everything that was going around her in the industry. Oh, absolutely. But also playing in the industry. I remember one witty weekly scribe here, and I forget who, I, I wish I could credit, played on the Klondike Cat uh, character Savoir Faire, yeah. and and you know Savoir Faire is everywhere was the catchphrase, and Liz Fair was everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was on the cover of Options. She's on the cover of every magazine that did any music coverage at that point, often in in highly sexualized poses, which she was playing consciously toward. She told me right after it came out, whether anybody likes the album or not, it was totally necessary for me to do. Mm-hmm. It was a complete vision I achieved for my Self, and that was really awesome. And that's absolutely true. She had workshopped these songs in the Girly Sound tapes, which we can now listen to uh, in, in, in giving extra context to the actual album, which is a massive enough uh, document to begin with. And she had some incredibly empathetic uh, musicians, Brad Wood mm-hmm. producing and drumming. I think Leroy Bach is one of the secret weapons of this album. He would go on to do some work with uh, uh, Wilco. So, you know, not every guy was giving her the cold shoulder no, no. in Chicago. There were men who were eager and willing to help her uh, realize this ambitious vision. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. And the, and the songs really hold up. I, I think when you t- think about songs like Six Foot One and... Help Me Marry, uh, Seven Veils, which is hilarious, by the way, uh, about, you know, ill-fated Johnny, you know, I'm going to marry you, but we can skip the until death part because you're already dead as far as I'm concerned. Well, and Help Me Marry, where she's she's talking about being deathly afraid of her roommates who are incredibly sloppy and they talk behind her back and they quote, I love this line, leave suspicious stains in the sink. No, it's, uh, I, I think a lot of young people heard that record then who were in the midst of the throes of that dating scene and trying to meet other people and thinking about what their future were going to be. And they could really relate to it because it just was like, you can say that on a record? Yeah. You can speak how you really feel? I thought you could only put this in your diary. So it's still, to me, uh, an incredible accomplishment. Can I say something controversial, though? I actually prefer the next two albums, uh, 1994's Whip Smart and yeah. 98's White Chocolate more Space refined. They were more refined. They, they didn't have the conceptual baggage. She was not worrying so much about positioning herself in the rock world. Yeah. No, what I mean, happened, Liz? She uh, gave an interview a few years ago where she she made a record which was a little less uh, uh, 
sugar-coated than the previous one. She said, I feel creative for the first time in 15 years. And I said, that's probably the most honest thing you've said because, you know, the creativity clearly has not been your friend. I, we should also note that because we were there and and she often said things to us, you and yeah. me as journalists, that, that she later regretted, uh, she doesn't really talk to us anymore. No. <laughs> Let's remember Liz when Liz was great. I think, you know, a, a testament to Exile in Guyville is 18 songs, and I would like to play right now at least 11 of them. But the one I'm opting for, Greg, is is Six Foot One, because I really think uh, in terms of the many moments of female empowerment here, I loved my life and I hated you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's rock and roll at its very best. Six Foot One by Liz Fair on Sound Opinions. Obviously, two enthusiastic buy-its for both Janelle Monae's new album and Liz Fair's classic Exile in Guyville. Now we want to hear from you. What do you think of Janelle's new album? What do you think about Exile in Guyville 25 years on? Call us and leave a message at 888-859-1800. Up next, Slayer. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and today we've got Slayer. We're revisiting our interview with the band from 2010. They're going on a farewell tour after 37 years. 3,000 shows, 12 albums. To me, Jim, the defining thrash metal band, they came up alongside bands like Metallica, Megadeth, Testament. And They Prax. created a new sound in the uh, early 80s uh, through the 90s. To me... They were the most consistent and best metal band of the last three, four decades. And, uh, you know, a lineup that has changed a number of times over the last years, which was the lead up to this decision by the band to call it quits. I don't think they were ever the same after Jeff Hanneman's death in 2013, one of the founding guitarists. Uh, There have been various health problems by other band members as well, Uh, a rotating cast of drummers, usually very good drummers. But I think uh, the departure of Dave Lombardo, uh, who has been in and out of the band various times over the years, Lombardo finally leaving uh, around the time of Hanneman's death, that was a another blow. And uh, they, they finally said, you know what, guys, it's been a good run. Uh, they, they decided to end it here, which I think is appropriate because I think their best work was uh, is definitely behind them at this point. Yeah, but Greg, they will forever define, I think, metal as arguably one of the uh, bands. It, you know, if you want to explain heavy metal to an alien or your grandmother, oh, for sure, yeah. all right? you know, you say uh, Black Sabbath and Slayer. 
there. That's one of the reasons why they're so important. Also, I think, uh, you know, people who say, I, I just can't uh, uh, listen to that kind of extreme music. All right. It, it's like, you know, riding a roller coaster, a really extreme one, and yeah. being at the top, it's scary, it's overwhelming, you may never want to do it again. Or laying at the end of a <laughs> runway. I did this when I was a kid in Newark, in the grass, and you wait for the jet to take off, and every molecule in your body vibrates. What am I talking about? In Slayer, it plays out with those two ferocious guitars, which are almost a constant blur of motion. Demonic. Some of the best drumming in rock history. Mm -hmm. uh, a super fast double bass drum. Not as many frills as some metal, just all forward propulsion with a bass that's driving it ever harder. And of course, there's Cookie Monster vocals. don't even have to know what they're singing about and often they're very you know fantastically violent fantasies uh you know but it doesn't matter because the voice is a texture mm. everything is a texture so greg as slayer embarks on its final world tour we uh, wanted to revisit our talk with guitarist carrie king and drummer dave lombardo he was still in the band in 2010 when we talked uh would leave the group again in 2013 about working with rick rubin uh their unique sound and more we started the conversation by asking how the band members came up with that sound and how their own personal musical tastes factored into it i think dave was probably the one that that, and still today is the one that likes everything under the sun. At that point, I was probably really into Priest and Maiden, and Jeff had jumped off into hardcore West Coast, more West Coast than anything else, hardcore punk, and that's where the speed and aggression came from. Mm. And Dave liked everything, so it just worked. Yeah, but the punk rock really fueled, I think, the heavy metal that we were into, you know, the Judas Priest style of riffing. You know, we brought that into, you know, that style of guitar riff. Yeah. Kind of blended those two together. And the idea that there could be metal music that didn't have fat, the way that punk didn't have fat, right? Well, we metal, metal had the, the intricate riffs. wasn't only singing about angst. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, punk was just based on a vibe, I think. Could have been three chords, could have been six chords, but it didn't really matter. It was just the vibe. A lot of people talk about that early 80s thing as, as sort of the shift in sound. Well, you, you talk about the aggression coming from metal. 
But, you know, the, the speed, the thrash metal thing, you guys are considered some of the pioneers of that. Was, was that a conscious thing we're going to play three times as fast as anybody else? I mean, we're talking about 220 BPM, I think, by the time you guys were making Rain and Blood. I think that developed slowly as, remember, we were young. Adrenaline, testosterone, we were, you know, high on life. And um, with the combination of that and playing live, and it just, it just sped up in a way mm-hmm. to, to become comfortably fast and to a point where, hey, this feels good. I was going to have the same story probably worded a little different. You know, Dave is, like, we bring stuff in and... You know, none of us are, like if I made it up or Jeff made it up, none of us really own it yet. You know, we're showing it to Dave and it naturally progresses speed-wide for, for probably a couple of weeks till it finds that place where we know this is where we got to stop. But were you conscious of like, this is kind of like the new thing? Did you guys feel no. like you were doing something kind of the next? Era? For me, all I wanted to do was be the, the anti-LA. Mm. I wanted to yeah. be as far away from poison and rat as you can possibly get. <laughs> I think we did it. And what was it about those bands that was turning you off that said, I don't, we don't want to be them? I never understood why girls wanted to go see guys dressed like girls. <laughs> I never got it. You know, to I this agree. day, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just it wasn't real to me. Mm-hmm. Dave Lombardo, you are the guy, a lot of people say, you know, man, the double kick drum. That, that was like huge innovation. When did you start toying with the elements of here's what I'm going to play here, here's how I'm going to hit it, expanding the sound of of metal in a lot of ways? Well, as we were writing the songs early on, you know, of course, they would give me the idea, hey, why don't you put double bass in this section? Mm -hmm. So I would have to find ways of developing patterns to, you know, bring that in to, to the riffing that they were bringing. So it was really, it's really natural and almost innocent um, how we did it. Because we really, I didn't take lessons. Mm-hmm. I was just listening to records and mimicking what was on the records. So it was just instinct and, and just experience of what I had listened to prior in my life or during that time that I was just taking little bits of information and creating my own. Dave, I'm looking at your T-shirt. You got a Gene Krupa T-shirt on there. It's pretty cool. Um, were you listening to Gene Krupa and jazz at drummers that at that time? Point? No, but short, like uh, I was listening to Latin jazz at that time. I was really exposed to a lot of that through my brother-in-law, who was telling me, "Now this is real music." No, 
do this stuff, you know, and I would play him some Judas Priest or, or Kiss or Iron Maiden. Funny part of that story is Dave never wanted a second kick. Oh, yeah? Remember? No. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want it. It's like, I don't need that second kick. I'm like, listen, man, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And we kind of <laughs> persuaded you into giving it a shot, and you loved it. So as you guys were ascending into popularity in the 80s, coming up from that uh, Southern California underground, you, you know, you started to get criticism, mainly for the lyrics, and uh, particularly from the wife of Al Gore, Tipper Gore. In 1985, she co-founded the Parents Music Resource Center, an organization that uh, identified itself as uh, an antidote to what was going on out there with those sexually explicit lyrics. We're going to call these bands and artists out for the violence and explicitness, uh, the sexuality in their lyrics. And they mentioned your band and the music as an example. Parents should realize that we have explicit and graphic sex, extreme violence, suicide in lyrics that is going to children that are sometimes not even teenagers yet and young teenagers. We were both starting our careers at that point, or just beginning to write about. Me. I mean, it was just like you don't understand this band, and yet there you are on television on Capitol Hill, and other people jumping on the band. Where it's like, have you ever listened to this band? Do you know what these lyrics are about? Do you know what this band is about? You know, now that that's ancient history, how does it feel to have been demonized in such a way? I remember when all that went down, and I said, the only thing this is going to do is make kids want it more. <laughs> yeah. And realistically, they did, you know, and if that kid wanted that record, he was going to get it. You know, I don't know if he had an older friend, an older brother, you know, they're going to get it. It's, it's, you're, you're almost making it like the drug industry when you ban things, you know what I mean? It's like, if somebody wants it, they're going to get it. Carrie, I know, I know you've got a kid, at least one, right? Mm-hmm. Put yourself in Tipper Gore's shoes for a minute. I know that sounds really uncomfortable. To yeah, me, I don't think they fit. Flip it around. If you were her and, and, and sort of dealing with, okay, there's controversial content, explicit words. There's stuff in here that may be inappropriate, quote unquote, for a young kid to be listening to. How would you have handled it differently? Than well, then she be did a parent and take responsibility for your offspring. Mm-hmm. Don't blame me for something you can't control. Period. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. Sorry, I'm a realist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Your kid comes across some two live crew record or something like that. You say, hey, that's okay to listen to, but here's some things you need to know, or how, how, do, you, how do you handle a situation like that? I think a lot of people don't give kids enough credit. Mm-hmm. You know, 90, 95% of them understand it's entertainment, you know, and I'm not sitting here after I leave the studio going to go have a beer with Satan at the corner bar, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> When we come back, we'll talk more with Dave Lombardo and Kerry King of Slayer about working with producer Rick Rubin on their signature album, Rain in Blood. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Make you 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week, we are revisiting our 2010 interview with thrash metal giant Slayer in honor of the group's farewell tour, which is starting soon. Slayer uh, is one of the bands that defined heavy metal, put the genre on the map. And if you are to play this music for an alien who's wondering, what is this thing called heavy metal, please? You could do no better than laying some Slayer on them, hopefully at top volume. We spoke with drummer Dave Lombardo, who's since left the band, and guitarist Kerry King. You know, the band was pretty uh, underground in Southern California in the early 80s until they released their most revered and influential album, Rain in Blood, in 1986. That album was produced by a guy named Rick Rubin, who at the time was a hip-hop mogul. He was uh, running the Def Jam label. He was producing acts like the Beastie Boys and Run DMC, although he had a background as a musician in a uh, garage rock punk band. I asked Carrie and Dave if it felt unusual to be on a hip-hop label or if they just didn't think about it at all. I think at the time, just being out of what we were in and going into a major label scenario Mm. was good for us. And somebody that was cutting edge, like Rick Rubin. us and they helped us and put us in a different category of musicians where this guy Rick Rubin you know took notice hey there's something special about this band that I don't see anywhere else and I think it was a great move on our part well obviously you made a classic record with him right? absolutely yeah uh, your third record Rain and Blood Carrie what was a big difference for you in, in working with Rubin between what Slayer was and what it became with that record well the obvious one's budget mm-hmm but we didn't even care about that. We still wanted to go in and work, you know, till the sun came up. That was just who we were. And, you know, we've been asked a million times, did you know these 10 songs were, you know, historically going to be referred to as one of the greatest thrash metal albums of all times? And no, they were the next 10, mm-hmm. you know, we just went in and did them. Mm-hmm. And more on that speed story. I know when we started learning that record, it was longer than 30 minutes. <laughs> when yeah. it ended up, it was like 28 and change. <laughs> But, um, yeah, and, and Rick made us realize we didn't need the, the reverb, like the venom sound, so to speak. And when he took all that reverb out and cleaned it up, man, it was just brutal. It just punches you in the forehead from top to bottom. I think it also kind of showed people that you guys could really play. At that point, it was kind of like, wow, these guys are really good at what they're doing. You can make all these comments about the lyrics, but there was no doubt that there was sort of a level of musicianship on that record. And let me make a note also that that was before computers. Mm -hmm. That was before recording digitally. That was all on tape. But was the band always playing together at the same time, Dave? Yes. So not even slicing with a razor blade or... Uh, I mean, there was times that yes. happened. Yeah. Yes. But it's not like with Pro Tools where you're mixing no, and matching verses. No. and That's abuse to music. But it's so easy. It yeah. is. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it makes our life easy. But, yeah. 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 And it's interesting, too. You talk about the 28-minute record because at the time, a lot of the iconic metal records at the time were, were getting longer. You know, Metallica was making these eight, eight nine, ten-minute tracks, and you guys are going in the exact opposite direction. 
Was it almost like you you were listening? Were you listening at all to what what everybody else was doing and kind of saying we're going to go in the exact opposite direction? Or nah, no, we just did what we wanted to do regardless of what was happening. You know, I I, I can't remember when Puppets came out in in regards to Rain and Blood. I know they were really close, mm-hmm. but um, you know, that was a real good time for music because that's my favorite Metallica record, Master of Puppets, and most fans' favorite Slayer albums, Rain and Blood. So something mm-hmm. something was going on that year. And then you guys went exact opposite direction yet again, you know, with the next record. You, you know, you follow up one of the fastest, hardest hitting records ever, and then you just completely hit the brakes with the next record. That a, again, like we're not going to repeat ourselves. We're going to go somewhere else with this with this record. That one was definitely thought about because um, you know putting the set list together, it was just brutality. It was just blasting people in the face, you know. And there's no dynamic to the performance. So mm-hmm. we're like, all right, we just did this south of heaven. Let's you know concentrate on being heavy. So we had something to offset, mm-hmm. you know, all the rain and blood and and hella weight stuff. And it was an interesting move because you would become popular. I, I, I think uh, Rain and Blood ended up selling like a, a half mil. Huge success considering that you guys are essentially an underground band. And then South of Heaven, you, you basically go away from the sound that made you popular, <laughs> which was kind of a perverse move at the time. I mean, were any of you saying, I don't know, maybe we should just do more of the same. You know, we got, we got popular doing this. When you're in a band, I mean, you always need to evolve. You need to try new things. Let's say if we tried to repeat Rain and Blood, you can't really try to top yourself. You, you have to try to experiment and see if that's, that's the way to go. So I think it's great, the direction that the band went at that time, because like he says, it brings diversity to the set. And, you know, there's a lot groovier stuff. Mm. And then again, it shows our musicianship too, that we can play slow. It's not just a bunch of noise. doing that record it made me realize that we left something behind on rain and blood that we had to go back and make sure we got to take with us Mm. um so i think tom sang way too clean on that record because i like the intenseness of the rain and blood album and even though there's great songs on south of heaven i don't like it as much because of the vocal performance so i knew in doing seasons in the abyss that we had to we had to blend those and make the happy medium of sorts Nineteen ninety record, Seasons in the Abyss, was kind of like a 
the fifth album, that seemed to be like kind of a summing up of where you guys were at that point. It seems to be one of those albums that, okay, you want everything that, that's good about Slayer. It's, it's all on this record. Did you feel that way when you were making it? That, that was kind of that kind of a statement? I think for me, we were taking all the good parts of the past and making a record out of it. Yeah. You hear that most, again, on World Painted Blood, I think. It's everything anybody could like Slayer for, and it's all on that record. So it's, it's just kind of set us up for what we were going to be, I think. Mm-hmm. What we thought we were going to be. We are talking to Kerry uh, King and Dave Lombardo of Slayer. For all the, the talk about the shock value of the lyrics, there's there's an artistry there. there there's a poetry, not to get overly heavy. Uh, I mean, did that ever bother you guys? I mean, there's a lot of thought there. There's a lot of intellectual thought. There's you, Three of you are writing the lyrics at different points, right? And mm-hmm. um, does that ever tick you off? People say that all we are is shock, and yet there is this content there? Well, I mean, realistically, you can't write those kind of things without being intelligent enough to back them up. Look at our writings. Look at Marilyn Manson's writing. Anybody that writes, you know... Not straight down the road stuff. Yeah, I look back to Angel of Death and Disciple, you know, different eras, but the same kind of thing. And Jihad, for instance, you know, if if, if somebody took those lyrics and made a documentary out of it, and it was on Discovery Channel, mm. it'd win awards. But yeah. Slayer wrote it, so it's dangerous. There has been this uh, increasing political bent over the last couple of records, putting the death, destruction, blood, and mayhem in the context of, uh, hey, look around. There's death, destruction, blood, and mayhem everywhere. Talk about rain and blood. It's been less storytelling and more kind of repertorial. The funny thing is, Disciple came out on God Hates Us All, which everybody knows came out on September 11th. And you look at Disciple, and it looks like I knew something. I just you know, watch the news and take little snippets and make a song out of it. And it actually turned into reality almost, almost exactly. One of the things that I find incredibly inspiring at a, at a Slayer show is the sense of community. If you say you're a Slayer fan, it still means something. You're part of a community. You're part of an aesthetic. Is that a heavy responsibility? Is that something you guys ever think about? I know what you're saying, but I think just being who we are, making up the songs we make up, doing these kind of interviews, doing in-stores, you know, you're giving back and you're seeing who's coming. You know, it's still the original guys and their kids, and their grandkids, mm. and older brothers and younger brothers, and, you know, sisters now, too. I mean, the, <laughs> the amount of women coming to the shows is just staggering, especially the ones in the pits that are thrown with the guys. That's impressive. Yeah, you see it in the front row. Yeah. See the poor girls there all squished among these guys. <laughs> you know, what did I get myself into? 
What's interesting, I wanted to follow up on what Jim was saying, though, because I think it's an excellent point. These last couple of records have been as intense as anything you guys have ever done. In fact, I think there's almost been kind of a rebirth in the band, it feels like to me. Like, the music is, is every bit as good as it ever was. And if it's possible... It seemed like when you were younger, you guys were maybe playing around with some of the shock tactics and sort of playing around with, yeah, okay, we are kind of edgy. You know, you think that was satanic? Well, we'll give you a satanic song, you know, almost playing with it. Now, it seems like if, if it's possible, you guys are angrier than ever at what you're seeing in the world. We're, we're really it good at like, being angry now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, it's weird. It's like, you think, oh, you know, a little bit older, they're going to lose a little edge. It seems like, no, you guys are more ticked off now. It seems like it's got a more of a serious edge to it in some ways. I, I know what you're talking about. I can see it in things I've written. I guess I'd attribute that to being older and, and seeing things differently, you know. Certainly doesn't mean I can't be upset about what's going on, but I like to um, I like to invoke thought. I like people to... You know, if you get anything out of something I read, I don't care if you believe anything I say, but if it makes you think about something and question something that you've never questioned before, then I've done my job. What about the, the reaction of the fans? What kind of feedback do you guys get? Because there, there has been the myth about the band that the fans are actually scarier than the band. Yeah, the, I had a weird story in Spain once I've told a million times, but um, we were out signing after the show, you know, they had them all line up somewhere outside and you know, I'm rolling down the line with my pen signing some stuff and this guy hands me what I assume is a sharpie <clears throat> and I'm like no dude I got my own I'm, I'm good and, you know he doesn't understand a word I'm saying but you know he's grunting at me with his and I'm like oh he must have the special pen so I grabbed his pen and he's getting hands me a scalpel uh-huh. wants me to carve slayer or something into him I'm like man mm-hmm. I'll, I'll sign anything you got but I'm not gonna cut you you know yeah wow but he was he was intense man he wanted it he saw you know some <laughs> of the imagery on our albums and stuff and he decided it was his time yeah their enthusiasm is a little scary they're really nervous mm-hmm. their hands are really sweaty and you know they're shaking mm-hmm. you think man this guy's nuts mm-hmm. but, yeah you know they're just happy to see you yeah. we see yeah. that <laughs> that's it sure are <laughs> thanks for coming out <laughs> now go get a napkin will you know, yeah. dry your hands Harry King, Dave Lombardo of Slayer. It's been uh, an honor and a pleasure having you guys on Sound Opinions. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, boys. Thanks, man. Very cool. That wraps up our conversation with Kerry King and Dave Lombardo of Slayer. If you have any opinion on the end of Slayer or their role in metal in general, call and leave us a message with your thoughts at 888-859-1800. Greg, what's on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we've got some more buried treasures, some uh, records under the mainstream radar that you need to know about. And we'd love to hear from our listeners what some of their picks are for recent buried treasures. Call us at 888-859-1800. Greg, we want to thank our producers, Brendan Banasak, Alex Claiborne, and Anna Contreras.
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Baby, I got your number. Hi, Tim and Greg. This is Jennifer from Richmond, California. I'm a regular listener, and I'm a big fan of theme shows, so thanks for your episode on horses. The song that I instantly thought of is Freedom for the Stallion from the 1970s by the late, great Alan Toussaint of New Orleans. Freedom for the stallion Freedom for the mare and a goat Freedom for the baby child Who has not grown old enough to vote the Lord have mercy Toussaint doesn't write this song explicitly about horses, but he uses the mare, the stallion, and the colt as metaphors for slaves and other oppressed people looking for freedom. And it's got lines like, They've got men building fences, keeping other men out. Ignore him if he whispers and kill him if he shouts. In my opinion, the greatest recording of the song is Toussaint himself, live at the 1976 New Orleans Jazz Fest. Just an astounding performance. Thanks again, you guys. I really appreciate what you do. Take care. Hi, this is Alan from Sunnyvale, California. And I just wanted to call because... I don't think I'm the only one out there who, uh, during Greg's analysis of the Cowboy Junkie song, A Horse in the Country, was saying to themselves, the horse represents a guy. woman in the song has a marriage and a life that do not make her happy and the cowboy junkies play with these long-standing metaphors such as like the stud and the stallion to tell how this woman uses her male lover as a sort of pressure valve to release the tension of her dreary life every two weeks sure she could just be making an appointment to ride a horse every two weeks but it sounds much more like a regular tryst near the end she sings All my friends have settled down, become their mothers and fathers without a sound, except for Cassie. She bought a one-way subway ticket and left us all behind. So I'm thinking that perhaps Cassie is the woman who left the man who has now become the narrator's lover. Thus, the most exciting thing in the narrator's life are sexual trysts with a man rejected by another woman who did exactly what the narrator wants to do, which is to get out of that town, to get out of that particular life. Love the show. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Greg and Jim. This is Jane in Connecticut. As a racing fan, I was really pleased and uh, surprised at your uh, theme. And uh, But I have to say you missed one song that's critical to it, and that's Run for the Roses by Dan Fogelberg. And it's a run for the roses as fast as you can Your face Uh, Thoroughbred only has one shot in its life to run in the Kentucky Derby, and that song is about the power and the grace and the nobility of the Thoroughbred breed. So 
that's the perfect song to play as well. Thanks so much. Love the show. Take care. Bye. Hello, this is Amy Talbot calling from Louisville, Kentucky, just two miles away from Churchill Downs, the home of the Kentucky Derby. I enjoyed your episode about songs about horses. One of my favorites is Amani Coppola's Legend of a Cowgirl. It's a fun song about uh, getting on a horse and getting away from it all. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.